The goal is to think critically about neighborhoods and help inform policymaking and community service provision to build better neighborhoods to help support aging in place, particularly among underserved and underrepresented communities. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that matter for the quality of the experiences of later life. I am Susie Stadler, an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, a community learning platform and the producer of this program. The topic is aging in many places, neighborhoods, health, and well-being in later life. Just imagine what would happen if a developer had to submit a list of the cognitive health factors for their next public project, such as a mall or a shopping center, for example. If they had to submit this cognitive health list to get a building permit, it could happen based on the work of and initiated by Jessica. Our guest is Jessica Finlay. She's a research investigator in the social environment and health program at the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research. She's a health geographer and environmental gerontologist with an MA and PhD in geography and gerontology from the University of Minnesota. So welcome, Jessica, and thank you so much for joining and sharing your super interesting research. Before we start, I just want to remind everybody of the format. Jessica and I will talk for about 30 minutes, and then we'll open up the conversation for audience Q&A. Without further ado, let's jump in. Jessica, first of all, welcome again. It's really wonderful to have you. I would like to start with a very basic question. What prompted you to become an environmental gerontologist with a research focused on age-supportive neighborhoods? Great first question, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and just see so many friendly faces on the call. I moved from Canada to the States, gosh, a little over a decade ago now. I moved for graduate school, but I wanted to get involved beyond the university walls to know my new country, new city of Minneapolis. And so I started to volunteer for a community health program that provides health services to lower income North and Northeast Minneapolis residents. And I was coming from a teacher degree. I was an elementary school teacher before this. So I volunteered to work with children because that was my familiar comfort zone. And then they told me, well, you know, we're actually full up for volunteers with our children's programs. How do you feel with working with older adults? At the time, I think I knew a handful. I knew my grandparents. I loved them. And so I thought, okay, sure, I'll give it a try. And thank goodness that happened because it really changed my personal and my professional life. Older adults moved to the center of my my world and my perspective. And so I would bike from my little bubble near the university into North and Northeast Minneapolis, and I would watch the neighborhoods change. 
as I biked there. I would go from a very walkable, service-rich area into lower-income neighborhoods, and I would see the neighborhood landscape change around me as I made that very relatively short bike ride. I also started to get to know older adults on a weekly basis, and I just became fascinated by their stories and how vulnerable they were to their local environments. People would tell me, oh, there's a snowstorm coming. I've got to make sure I'm all packed up. I might not get out of my home for weeks on end, given lack of plowing, lack of salting, lack of abilities to get out. That's just one example of the many stories that I heard. And so this led to my early research on aging in place and asking diverse Minnesotans what they felt they needed to support them in their homes and neighborhoods, what services, amenities, and infrastructure were necessary to support physical, mental, and social health as they age. And so that was kind of my early entry into combining health geography and environmental gerontology together. When did this start, Jessica? When did you start? I moved in 2011. So time is a flat circle right now. I think it's 2022. (laughs) So it was 11 years ago now. That's pretty amazing. A lot has happened and a lot of your work has happened in this 11 years. Tell us more about your research, its methods, which are rather innovative and unusual and its goals. Sure. So like I mentioned, neighborhoods are the focus for me and how they relate to health and well-being in later life. And when I did my dissertation research, that was largely qualitative study. So I interviewed 125 older adults across the Minneapolis metropolitan area, and I used both seated and mobile interviews. So I asked them about their homes and neighborhoods, and I said, if you're willing, can you show it to me through up to half an hour of touring somewhere? For some, we walked around just their room, their home, their block. I also remember a very hot day. I walked around an entire lake in one of our suburban case study areas. So it really ranged. One of the pieces I heard about most frequently was fears of cognitive decline, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. People knew, depending on their resource level, roughly how to navigate physical mobility impairments. So they would say, well, I can put a chair in the shower, or I can try and get a grab bar installed, or I can move some rugs. But when it came to cognitive impairment, these were huge unknowns and huge fears a very relatable and understandable fear of losing yourself, but also fears of what if I cause a house fire? What if I wander? What if I need really costly care? What if I am a burden on my family or my community? And so that led to the next phase of my research and what brought me to the University of Michigan to study neighborhood contexts of cognitive decline. I'm interested in what neighborhood features might help promote healthy cognitive aging. I'm using a mixed methods approach. So I'm using that qualitative research to kind of inspire where do we look at? And then I test that in a large national aging sample called the REGARD study. So REGARDS is the Reasons for Geographic and Racial Differences in Stroke Study. It's over 30,000 aging Black and white Americans who've been tracked since 2003. So we know where they live and how they're doing on cognitive testing, as well as a host of other individual and area-level characteristics. So what we've done is we've taken qualitative hypotheses, okay, where are older adults physically active, socially engaged, and cognitively stimulated outside of their homes? And then we've tested those places in our quantitative sample. And I think we'll dig into more of those specific places in our conversation questions to follow. But really the goal is to think critically about neighborhoods and help inform policymaking and community service provision to build better neighborhoods to help support aging in place, particularly among underserved and underrepresented communities. 
It seems that the regard study was a super helpful springboard for your research. Yes, regards is a great sample. It has a lot of very diverse neighborhoods from urban to suburban to rural dwelling older adults. There's a lot of different types of neighborhoods all across the United States. A large portion of my work is focusing on underrepresented and underserved older adults. And so it was important to me to find a sample that the qualitative work had a very strong group of African-American and Black older adults. And so the regard sample is just under half Black for the participants in it. So that was a, an important way to get at some of these differences that makes it by race and ethnicity and other neighborhood characteristics as well. So. What did you find out about what infrastructure do people need in their neighborhoods to support their cognitive health and maybe also sort of the differences between neighborhoods? Yeah, a lot of the qualitative work, as I said, kind of gave us those first ideas of where to focus on. Physically active, people talked about you know, having walkable destinations. So being able to walk to get groceries or pick up a pharmacy prescription or pick up grandchildren. They also talked a lot about parks in the local area. These weren't necessarily massive national parks. They were just often small pocket parks that were easy to get to, sources for community, as simple as having a bench and a shady tree. They didn't have to be larger grand parks. Those pocket parks, neighborhood features were really supportive as well. And then recreation centers, places like gyms and YMCAs, swimming pools, golf courses, those were all different types of places to be physically active. For places to be socially engaged, we focused and heard a lot about senior centers for one, also civic and social organizations. So those are places like VFW veteran organizations and civic boards and park and community groups and neighborhood blocks. And we also heard about coffee shops and fast food restaurants as places to go to kind of both meet up with people and also to just soak up the ambient contact of people around you. We might not think about a McDonald's as a site to promote public health, but in our work, you know, we're seeing older adults are using fast food restaurants often to say, hey, I can get a cup of coffee for a dollar and sit for hours and chat with people. So that was the place we focused on. And then for cognitive stimulation, these are places for creative and complex activities. The places that our qualitative analysis drew us to focus on were performing art centers, theaters, museums, art galleries, as well as libraries and higher education campuses. So kind of sites of arts, culture, education, and learning were the places we focused on. I've kind of divided them up in these little boxes, but we know that these sites overlap. For example, go to a gym to both exercise and see their friends. I once had someone tell me, the only thing I do at the gym is exercise my mouth. And so, you know, we kind of divided them up, but we know that there's overlap. When people go to a theater performance or a movie theater, it's to both watch the show, but also they see their friends, they engage in intermission, at least pre-COVID, of course. How we use these spaces has kind of fundamentally changed as well. Maybe another question we can talk about in what's to come. What's really important in what you just said also is that often it doesn't take much to make a neighborhood healthy. It could be a bench at the corner, you know, which has a health aspect. But I'm also curious if there were any surprises or something you discovered which you wouldn't have expected apart from, you know, McDonald's, which might be something of a surprise. The qualitative results were relatively expected. I don't know if there were any massive surprises there. We were a bit surprised in what came out 
in our quantitative results. So we had about 15 neighborhood places, and then we tested them to see what might be positively linked to cognitive health. We tried to put them all together in one big model to say, well, what's most important to cognitive health in our large national regard sample? What came out as the most positive was civic and social organizations, which sort of makes sense. They're devoted to being places to engage and to gather with others and pursue activities together. We did also see performing art sites, museums, and recreation centers. Those were all the positives. And this is going to be coming out hopefully soon in a paper that's under review. I thought libraries would come out. I know a lot of at least anecdotal evidence about people using libraries as well as senior centers. They're literally devoted to supporting older adults. And I have some amazing qualitative work on the importance of senior centers to people's lives, but they didn't come out in our quantitative results. So that was a little bit of a surprise. I thought everything, well, I shouldn't say everything, but I expected a lot to come out. And so it was interesting to see what the results were. And then for negatives, so having access to and living in areas with a lot of highways was a negative, which we expected, I haven't talked yet about hazards and barriers to activities. We know that highways are both sites of pollution, which are bad for the brain, but they're also barriers to getting around and be able to use your neighborhood. So that was an expected negative, but fast food and coffee shops also came out as a negative. So people in neighborhoods with higher numbers of coffee shop and fast food restaurants was associated with worse cognitive function in our regard sample. When we had coffee shops and fast food alone in an early preliminary analysis, they were a positive. But maybe when we stack in a bunch of other neighborhood features where we can be socially engaged or active, I don't know, maybe the negative food pathway comes out where fast food restaurants are sites that serve, you know, foods high in cholesterol and fat and sugars and salt. So maybe that's what came out. I don't know. We also know that fast food and coffee shop restaurants are placed differently in our neighborhoods. So maybe we're picking up on other noise in neighborhoods, but we did control for a, a whole host of both individual and area level covariates. So we are controlling in our analyses for neighborhood socioeconomic status, for example, percent living in poverty, percent unemployed, percent black, you know, we have a whole group of them. It's a little bit of a puzzle, but something that's fun to work through. And it's just the starting point, really. This is our first foray into building up a new concept, and we're going to start testing it in other samples as well. So we have this kind of early idea built upon a mixed methods approach, and we're going to test it, for example, in the health and retirement study next, which is a nationally representative sample. And we're trying to build out other collaborations to think through what this means in different places across the lifespan. So that sounds like an enormous undertaking on a national scale. That's what it sounds like. You're creating this rating system and there's a website. Can you tell us a little bit more about this system and mapping? Yeah, so so I'm inspired by walkability, which I see is a blend of geography and public health and urban planning. My goal in this work has been to develop a new concept, what I'm calling cognibility. Instead of thinking about how supportive a neighborhood is to walking, I'm thinking about how supportive is it to cognitive health in later life through these pathways of having neighborhood resources that support being physically active, socially engaged, and cognitively stimulated. We have a paper that we've been working on to present this concept to the world, but I also don't want it to just be a paper that's read by very few people. So we're building out a public website to go with it that shares 
our research, our approach, our results, hopefully in a very accessible way. We're not launched yet. I can share the link hopefully very soon, but we're calling it Cognibility. And what we do is anyone can type in an address and see how supportive their neighborhood is to cognitive health, given the presence or absence of these key neighborhood features. So places that are high in civic and social organizations and gyms and recreation centers and arts and museums, they will rate very highly for cognibility versus places that lack these sites or are higher in, for example, highways and polluting sites, they will have a negative rank for cognibility. The goal is to make this a tool that really first just helps educate people about neighborhoods and their links to healthy aging and cognitive health. But also we've worked really closely with an amazing community advisory board to get this website up and running and this mapping tool. The goal is to really ideally help inform civic planning. The map has some very stark trends. For example, in Detroit, we can see very large swaths of low cognibility areas. So underserved neighborhoods that you can see are areas that are important to advocate for investment. And then also there were some strengths, even in these underserved neighborhoods, there were some very high ranking tracks that popped up, little areas. And so using a strength-based approach too, to think what is happening in this region that is supporting cognitive health and is there access to that point? Maybe you don't live exactly where the museum is or the art gallery is, but can you get there by walking, by bus, by driving, by shuttle? Are there ways to enhance access and build awareness of these sites that really promote healthy aging in place? Yeah, and the more important it is to actually recognize what are public places. Museums are public places, and access should be as easy as possible, therefore, both in terms of admission, but also accessibility related to cognitive health. I think that's a really important part of it. Many of the places you mentioned, part of the neighborhood infrastructure, were affected by the pandemic, destroyed to a large extent. And most likely they will never come back 100%. And I'm just wondering how we can compensate for the loss of this, what's often called third places, this sort of informal or not recognized places of connection. I'm curious to hear your take on this, but also how this might have affected your research. Yeah, it's a hugely important question and one I think a lot about. We know that the pandemic has really fundamentally changed neighborhood landscapes and the ways that we engage in places or our abilities to age in place. And so this is some of the work that we're currently doing in a separate study called the COVID-19 coping study. We're asking aging adults about where are you going to be physically active and socially engaged and how are you seeking out entertainment and stimulation and support and connection during these times. It's interesting to see these shifts. I'm literally in the middle of analyzing this data, so it's still really early, a little more anecdotal what I'll share with you, but some are not super surprising. We're seeing a lot of outdoor places, for example, as increased areas to engage, and that could be private home space, having patios and gardens and front porches to engage with others and neighbors or even family and friends, but also you know, community parks, and outdoor dining where the weather, of course, enables it. It's hard in Minnesota or Michigan, or maybe in really hot places in the summer. Sometimes it's a little weather dependent, but we're hearing about increased use of kind of outdoor third places. So for those who aren't familiar in this sociological literature, home is the first place 
worker school is a second place. And then third places are these sites outside of those where you go to kind of hang out, to see other people connect, engage, care for one another. It's different for all of us. It could be a library, a bar, a barbershop, you know, a swimming pool, a gym. I've got a running club I belong to. We all have different third places, hopefully, in our lives that are important to us. Another shift we're seeing is more online third places as well. Instead of brick and mortar places, people are doing activities online. Many are talking about how they enjoy sites of worship. Faith services online has been helpful or a senior center programs online, but it's not universal. You know, not everyone has stable internet connection or the technological comfort to be on Zoom, for example, for hours a day. And then also people have talked about how it doesn't replace physical in-person context, that chit chat you have with someone that's maybe not a planned friend or family member you gather with, but just soaking up the contact of someone or running into someone in a grocery store and having a conversation over the bananas or something. Those impromptu counters, people talk a lot about how that's diminished. We're a little more siloed too in who we engage with. So instead of bumping into a whole host of different people in these spaces, sitting at a restaurant next to others and hearing other conversations or meeting different groups of people, we're a little more siloed potentially with these communities because we're talking to more of the same smaller numbers of people instead of the civic life that would normally be in these places where we kind of bump into each other in a more organic way. So there's some really fundamental questions that I have about how this will change. For cognibility, yeah, of course I did all this work to build a concept and then the pandemic happened and totally changed all of my hypotheses. So, so what I'm doing is partly more qualitative research, like I said, to understand changing ways of engaging with neighborhoods and the differences of what neighborhoods look like. And then also considering what else do we need to put into our models? By no means is our list exhaustive. For example, I feel silly now that our initial analyses don't have online technology, internet access, or connectivity levels. We don't have that in the initial models. And we know that that has been so important in the pandemic. And new places might come up that are important too. These are really ongoing questions that I'm engaging with and really love if anyone has ideas or want to just chat about it. It's taking up a lot of space in my brain to think through. Well, it seems your research has become even more important during the pandemic, not less important, because there's so much more pressure on cognitive health. So to learn more how this can be stimulated in the context of a neighborhood or in the context of home, I think is really important. It's a dynamic undertaking, it seems like. But I'm also curious as an architect and also from our work at, at home was growing older and the workshop we have Aging 360, which teaches people how to live better in their homes as they age. What comes up on and off is that people are actually afraid to connect with their neighborhood because because they're afraid of walking down the stair <laughs> because it's an unsafe stair, for instance, or they feel unsafe for other reasons in their neighborhood. And I'm wondering if this is something which you are planning on including in your research later on. Another great question. We haven't yet analyzed the home environment with this work. So we are kind of assuming that someone can get out the door and get to local places that are nearby in their immediate area. But it's an important piece. And that's partly why we're moving to other data sets like the health and retirement study, which has, for example, home measures and more mobility measures, also individual mobility, as well as their life space mobility. We do need to consider it. There's just one of many, many pieces that are on the wish list to build into our analyses.
it's super complex, but I think it is an important part to see homes as part of the public environment in a way. Even the private home is part of the public environment. I'm also curious, Jessica, where can non-academics access your research? Because it affects the everyday so much. So I think it would be really important to be able to do that. Is there a way? Yeah, there's a couple. I have a personal website. It's just jessicafinlay.com. I do try and put multiple papers up there. And then when the Cognibility site launches, it is meant to be read by anyone. And we welcome input too, if you read it. It's an ongoing project. As I said, we're working very closely with our community advisory board members to make it accessible to sort of summarize our work. The map is not done yet, but you can look up your address. And otherwise, I try to talk to the media whenever I can, talk to policymakers. If I do give a talk, I try and post those links through Twitter, for example, and other social media outlets. I try to communicate as much as I can beyond just kind of our peer-reviewed hide-behind-paywall manuscripts. And it is a priority of mine. I am trying to make as many of my manuscripts as I can public open access as well. They should become available as I move forward. Thank you. That's great. And I know you're very active on Twitter too. So that's also a good way to know what you're up to. Let's move to some of the questions. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Donna asks, have you looked at restaurants? We find we are often the oldest people in the restaurant when we eat out. And the big challenge is enjoying the restaurant when it is hard to hear due to the background music. This is a true challenge for socializing and yet another complex issue, which is difficult probably to capture. Yeah, that's a great comment. We had a test run paper that was just coffee shops and fast foods. One of the reasons we did that was because people talked about appreciating those environments were more accessible because they were less noisy. I've also heard from others that dining in restaurants pre-COVID, of course, can be very challenging given all of the noise. It's difficult to engage in those spaces. It can also be very crowded and difficult to navigate if it's a tight restaurant. Bathrooms can be confusing to get to, to navigate, whereas a more classic, I'm Canadian, so a Tim Hortons or a McDonald's is relatively wide pathways, pretty similar bathroom format pretty similar menus that are not hard to read. You don't have to try and get a phone or flashlight to see what's on the menu. So that was one of the reasons we focused more on the coffee shops and fast food. And then when we brought in the category to include restaurants and bars and broader eateries in our initial work, it went from significant to not significant for cognitive health. And that sort of reflected some of our expectations from the qualitative. So we have considered restaurants and we've toyed with them a little bit. And we know that for many, many reasons, sites can be inaccessible. So it's good to always remember that's why we need these qualitative stories to help us understand these spaces better and think about the complexities of access. I'm going to jump to Terry's question. She says, did anything in your research look at cross-generational relationships? That means how people of different ages and generations are socializing or exercising together. Another great question. We heard in the qualitative a lot about appreciating multi-generational spaces. People talked about enjoying a park because 
They could just sit on a bench and hear the laughter of children in the nearby playground where people talked about, especially older men in some of my qualitative work would happily go to a coffee group every Wednesday at the local coffee shop or fast food restaurant, but will not go to a senior center because that's for older people. And so there's these age graded spaces with our own internalized ageism where people sometimes have challenges inhabiting senior centers, for example. So we purposely included, given what we heard about these multi-generational spaces as being important. And I have advocated in some of my papers, we have some amazing examples of preschools next to senior centers. And so combining those spaces and activities together. I have two small kids, so I spend a lot of time in playgrounds. I'm looking for the adult exercise equipment too, to engage multi-generational spaces. So there's ways I think we need to promote that through urban design. It's not taking away from one generation to give to another. It's creatively building spaces for all of us, regardless of whether we're eight years old or 80 years old. Yeah, I totally agree, especially that outdoor spaces have become so much more important during the pandemic. So the more important it is to really think how various generations can inhabit them and make them their own in different ways. And I think observing each other is sort of part of it. And this is, you know, a wonderful opportunity in outdoor spaces. Erica asks, do you find that people are able to articulate what it is about their neighborhood that makes it feel health promoting for them? Or does it take some prompting? Do people have an accurate sense of what to seek out when they consider moving or even when thinking about what they can do without making a move to feel more engaged with their community? Yeah, that's, that's a great question and a complex one. Of the pathways, I think physical activity People roughly knew what to seek out if they were choosing or wanting to exercise outside of their homes. They would talk about, you know, going to the gym or having a golf group or a swimming group or water aerobics or dance or going to the park and walking or whatever it was. So I think physical activity, people knew relatively what was health promoting. And there's a lot of great work in walkability. People now can see a walk score on Zillow when they look at houses. So we've infused ideas about physical activity into our neighborhoods, I think in a good way that people are aware. Social connection and cognitive stimulation, a little bit less so. It took some teasing out to figure out these places. I think that with COVID, maybe one of the silver linings is some of us are more aware of where we want to seek out community and where we need to have connections and support. People have been sharing more with me without prompting how they are realizing whatever their community is or multiple communities that are important to them, you know, their faith community or their card group or hobby groups or family and friends. I feel like there's more of a social shift of awareness of these spaces because they were taken away from us during COVID. People would say, I really miss going to X or Y. And it took horrible societal trauma in some ways to realize that people now are, I think, a little more attuned to I miss just going to a coffee shop and soaking up the ambient contact of people around me. That may not have been a conscious activity before that people thought about how important a coffee shop was, but it's a little more aware in people's lives, I think now. And then the cognitive stimulation one is maybe the least aware. I mean, in some ways, of course, we get cognitive stimulation by simply being social or getting outside the door and navigating neighborhoods. So we don't necessarily need to go read 
great tomes in the library to be cognitively stimulated. It can happen through everyday activities. That one is a little more, not as thought of. People kind of put it more in their social category or just an enjoyment of arts and culture. They don't necessarily think about how attending musical events is helping their brains, but we're getting there. And hearing people talk about the lack of live music during COVID has been some heartbreaking quotes I've heard in some of the qualitative work that I do. So Jessica, like if you were a city planner, can you describe a totally ideal <laughs> neighborhood that would score the highest cognitive score? What would it be? It's not one size fits all. What our models would tell us, there are very complicated questions of access and equality and equity in our neighborhoods that I'm not touching on a lot today. So take this with an awareness that it's not equally accessible. And, and I do recognize that. But a high scoring neighborhood would be places, again, that are encouraging someone, everyone to be active and engaged and connected as they age. So having those little parks and walkable streets and accessible third places to gather and socialize. But it's also having access to essential services and amenities. So having grocery stores with healthy foods available, having access to healthcare for your physical and mental health, having places for leisure and entertainment, and also places for lifelong learning, whether it's libraries, educational campuses, or talks and events. And then of course, it's also minimizing exposures to those hazards and barriers to healthy aging. So not having highways and polluting sites or even, you know, places that discourage smoking is another pollutant that we're exposed to. It's overall a pretty thriving neighborhood. It's pretty similar to multiple health outcomes, whether you're talking about a heart healthy neighborhood or a brain healthy neighborhood. I think they look pretty similar and that's okay. It's good to have overlap in neighborhood designs. And this cognibility work is just meant to kind of help advance our efforts to, to really support aging in place for diverse older adults. What just came to mind while you were talking is that much of this is related to pretty dense urban neighborhoods. A lot of the U.S. population lives in suburbia or rural area. And I'm curious what your thought is about that. Yeah, no, that's a great point and one I've forgotten to bring up earlier. So at the moment, our analyses are just for urban and suburban dwelling older adults, because that's what the qualitative work in my expertise is. But rural environments are really important. I'm actually meeting with someone next week to try to do this work in rural communities. I think we need to measure neighborhoods differently. We need to conceptualize rural communities very differently and the access looks different and the features themselves probably look different. It's not my area. So I'm trying to connect with rural aging in place experts who can help guide this work moving forward in both regards, as well as the health and retirement study and other data sets to do this work. Because you're right, at the moment, it's very urban privileged perspective. So we need to build out what does it mean in rural communities moving forward. Now, of course, I think it's natural to start with urban environments, but I just think it's wonderful that you're already making the move to look at other areas and other ways that people live in terms of cognitive health and cognitive health support. I would imagine that, you know, transportation will have a much different weight in this kind of neighborhoods than it does in maybe more denser urban neighborhoods and different emphasis. Jessica, do you have anything you would like to share, something which we maybe didn't touch on? I suppose I would just say with what I hope Cognibility is used for, you know, the mapping platform, I hope it's used to spark awareness and education and also action. And so it is not intended to 
give a check mark to affluent neighborhoods or advantaged areas that have an abundance of services. We purposely made the color scheme of the map to draw attention to those lower cognitivity areas to prioritize investment and action to help policymakers. We have community service members on our community advisory board. They say, this is exactly what I need to be another piece of evidence to help justify why we need to build you know, services and amenities in these locations and to prioritize that. So that's one piece. The second piece is that, well, this is more of another mapping thing. I'm a geographer nerd, so I'm going to geek out for a second. We know that our analysis and our mapping is not picking up on everything. So one example is when I showed the map to our community advisory board, they immediately said, well, you know, you're, you're missing things. So for example, the murals in Detroit are a very big focal point for community and beautiful artistic expression. And they're not captured in our analyses. At a national scale, we're measuring kind of brick and mortar places. We're missing some of the community grassroots efforts that just don't show up on our maps. Another example would be community gardens. They may not be showing up on the maps as a gathering place or a place to be active and social and engaged. So the maps aren't perfect. They're meant to stimulate conversation and thought. What I really want to do moving forward is take these maps, maybe like blow them up and print them out and bring them to local communities and say, hey, what do you think about this? And have them maybe draw on there while well, you're missing this and this and this. And we can talk about what's not there and how we can map better, but also what we can invest in to kind of promote health and well-being in our diverse elder population. So there's a lot of work to do. It's just a starting point, but I hope to, you know, keep flipping back and forth between this qualitative community-driven work and then do our analyses and do our maps. Let's go back again to do qualitative after that and just keep stepping up to build it better moving forward. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is also a way to incentivize city planners to actually update the way they map and what they map. I think this has been very static over a long long time what is being mapped would be also interesting to look at. Yeah, I haven't talked a lot too about involving developers in private market. Like you said at the very beginning, if they're looking to build a development, what is in there to you know support being active and engaged as you age is another element to push this to. We know that Alzheimer's and dementia is a huge fear and there's more than 6 million Americans currently living with Alzheimer's disease in our country. So it's a huge area that we need to combine upstream neighborhood level, community level interventions with those downstream biomedical actions. Yeah. Jessica, you mentioned before that you might share the website with the sort of heads up that this is not done. Take a look. The map is still clunky. That is the last piece. Well, the mapping page, we're still rearranging. And, and what we're going to do moving forward is when you click on your area, it will say better why it rates high or low for cognibility. So there's more user-friendly features coming. It just takes a lot of programming to get up and running, but hopefully you can enjoy the other pages where we explain our process. I welcome comments, feedback. I'm happy to develop conversations moving forward. This is really a collaborative space and a new area for a lot of us. So I just welcome any additional thoughts afterwards as well. Thank you so much. I think what's fascinating is also that this is a very interdisciplinary space. So the more we can cut across disciplines to address these issues, the better. So... Thank you, Jessica. This was such an interesting conversation, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about your work, where this is going. Thanks for the great questions, Susie and everyone. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you all for spending this hour with us.
This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home With Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.